Nabil, welcome to Validated. Hey, Austin. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is an interesting episode, I think, for us. So for years, we've been hearing the promise of enterprise blockchain adoption. We've been hearing this sort of idea that these big companies are ready to start experimenting with blockchain. And, you know, for years, there have been small pilot projects inside of lots of these large financial institutions. Um, but I'm excited to talk to you today about WorldPay, FIS, uh, what your sort of long-term vision of the space is, what this sort of more immediate news is that you guys announced earlier this year with Visa and USDC. But before we sort of get into the, the crypto side of things, I want to take a step back and sort of start with what is WorldPay? What is FIS? These are two big names in the payment space that I think most people are not familiar with. Sure. Yeah. So one thing I like to say about FIS and WorldPay is we're probably one of the biggest companies you've never heard of, but use every day. So just before I dive into what we do, WorldPay is, is a part of FIS. So it's one of the business units within the company. And FIS as a whole is really a large financial services, infrastructure, technology, and regulated service provider. And we have three primary businesses. So one is what we call banking solutions. So if you think about a bank, um, it really needs a core ledgering system to track all the debits and credits and do things like interest payment calculations and notifications for customers and account management and all of that. And so that is what's called a banking core. And FIS is one of the largest providers of banking cores and associated softwares and services to the banking industry. So if you ever use online banking or ever go into a bank branch to do some business, you're interacting with the core in some form or fashion. Our second business is what we call Capital Market Solutions, which is, again, very similar technology, infrastructure, and services for asset managers. So think about hedge fund trading platforms, you know, software that pension funds use to track their asset base, calculate net asset value, all that sort of stuff. And then our third business is called WorldPay, which is the part of the business I work in. And WorldPay is the world's largest payment processor in the world. So what does that actually mean? A lot of people don't know this, but if you're a business, whether you're a small mom and pop business or a large enterprise, and you want to accept consumer payments, you actually don't go approach Visa and MasterCard and say, hey, Visa, I want to take Visa and MasterCard, I want to take MasterCards. You actually have to go work with a payment processor like a WorldPay. And so essentially what we do is we enable businesses large and small in over 50 countries to accept consumer payments across cards, e-wallets, local payment methods, bank transfers, et cetera in a variety of different currencies, and then also allow our clients to manage all the complexities associated with doing that around the world. Yeah, thanks. That's a, that's a very helpful overview of kind of how these things all work together. So I want to, you know, dive in here on WorldPay. So walk me through just at the highest level, like where does revenue come from for that business unit? Sure. Yeah. So revenue predominantly comes from us processing payments. And typically we charge, you know, two types of fees. One is what we call a click fee. So that's typically, you know, priced in cents, and that's just a service fee or technology fee for accessing the right to process the transaction. The second fee is typically percentage-based, and that has to do with actually processing the payment itself. One thing I get asked a lot is why is, you know, that also not a per-transaction fee? Why is it a percentage? And what a lot of people don't understand about payment processing and, and where the revenue really derives from is... Yes, we provide the process or the service of accepting the payment, but what we're actually doing is we're taking on some degree of financial risk when we do that. So Austin, I'm sure you've used a credit card to purchase goods and services before, but one of the big features of credit cards is they have what's called a, a chargeback right or a dispute right. 
And basically what that means is you as a consumer, you know, if you don't receive the good in service or if there's something that's different about it than what you expected or the merchant will give you a refund, even though you sent the product back or whatever, uh, you have the right to file a dispute and get your money back. And nine out of 10 times or probably 99 out of 100 times that money's coming from the merchant itself. But in the one out of 100 cases or whatever it might be where the merchant's gone out of business, the payment processor, in this case, WorldPay, in our example, would be the one that's left holding that risk. So that's why that second piece of revenue is really percentage-based is because the amount of risk we take directly increases with the dollar of the transaction. Right. And so if you're looking at kind of this space, I think you guys, you know, your website has something like $1.7 trillion of payments and then about $40 billion transactions a year sort of running through. I'm not sure if that's FIS or WorldPay. That's WorldPay. Um, uh, and our website might just be a little Pay. bit out of date, actually. I think this year we're going to do $2.2, $2.3 trillion in payment acceptance around the world. So there's this famous chart from Airbnb. I'm not sure if it was in the S1 or if it was from something earlier in their history where they had this crazy map that showed all of the ways that they have to manage payments and payouts. It's everything from, you know, direct deposits into accounts, wire transfers, prepaid debit cards, like all the things you'd sort of expect, paper checks, yep. to, you know, in Pakistan, you can get a guy to come to your house with a bag of cash yep. and just hand it to you because that's a that's a payment system sort of internationally. So what's the sort of scope of different types of payment services that WorldPay works with right now? Yeah, almost all of the above, if I'm being honest, or as regards the Airbnb announcement or the case study. And this is public, you know, we've talked about them being a client of ours, actually. So if you think about Airbnb, there's really two sides of the transaction from a payments perspective. There's Airbnb accepting payment from the consumer who's booked the stay. So if you're in the US or Canada or parts of Western Europe, you know, cars continue to be the predominant payment method that consumers use online. And so we would support, for example, payment processing for a card purchase that was used to buy a stay. Now, for consumers outside of those regions, which, as you can imagine, Airbnb as a global company has a lot of consumers outside of those regions, they will also offer a lot of different what we call local payment methods. So these could be things like GrabPay, which is very large in Southeast Asia, or Mercado Pago, which is very large in Latin America. And so if you look around the world, there are really hundreds, if not thousands, of non-card payment methods that are being used to buy goods and services. And so for each international client of ours, and Airbnb being an example, Typically, what we find is, you know, based on where they have a lot of customers and based on where they see a lot of demand to enable certain payment methods, they'll come up with this list of like 10, 20, 30 or whatever it is of payment methods that want, they want to support. And some of those payment methods will only be available in certain countries or certain regions because that's where the consumers who use those payment methods are. And so for us, you know, we support a subset of those. You know, we try to the degree possible to be payment method agnostic. We just want to enable our clients to accept payment methods using, you know, the same integration, the same reporting, the same reconciliation to help deal with some of that complexity you mentioned or abstract it away. And so, you know, depending on the client, we'll offer them cards, but also a variety of local payment methods that go into that broader list of 10, 20, 30 that they might be accepting. So that's the first piece is receiving the, the payment from the consumer. The second piece for Airbnb or really any sort of marketplace or platform like that is they need to then send the payment to the hosts or the sellers on that marketplace. And there's, there's a lot of complexity that goes into actually calculating, okay, if, if I've had 10 different consumers from around the world stay at this one person's Airbnb in the Philippines, how much is that person actually owed when you account for things like FX and maybe some cancellations and some refunds and whatever? So 
there's actually quite a complex computational engine that goes into determining, you know, how much money does Airbnb then need to pay to that host, uh, wherever that host may be. And then to your point earlier, you know, depending on where that host is, Airbnb may effectuate that payment to the host using a traditional bank wire. They might use local bank payment rails, so ACH in the US as an example, or faster payment system in the UK, um, or maybe even pay out to the e-wallet of that customer or that host, excuse me. So maybe the host has a PayPal wallet and Airbnb pays out to their PayPal wallet, for example. So as you can appreciate, when you take Airbnb and the number of countries that they operate in and the number of payment methods that they want to offer, both from an acceptance and a payout perspective, the number of possible you know permutations gets pretty large pretty quickly. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your guys' adoption of USDC and blockchain payments and sort of the the work that was announced you know earlier this year with Visa. So Visa announced they were scaling their USDC settlement program, which they began on Ethereum. They were adding Solana to it, and as part of that, there were were two large payment processing institutions, WorldPay being one of them, that they were sort of adding. Uh, USDC transfer capabilities with. Can you walk us through a little bit of what that is? And then I want to get into some of the the business logic and business reasoning that went into you guys making that decision. Sure. So before I dive into that, I might give a two second explanation or maybe two minutes about how card payment processing actually works today. And so for those that aren't familiar with the space, there's this thing called the four party or the four corner model. Uh, And the reason it's called that is because there's four key parties that are involved in processing any card-based payment. So the first party is what we call the issuing bank. And the reason it's called that is it's the bank that issued you, a consumer, your card. So me, for example, let's use a, a US example. I've got a Chase Visa card that I use for a lot of my purchases. So in that example, Chase would be the issuing bank. They're the bank I received the credit card from. The second is the card network. So that would be Visa, MasterCard, American Express, et cetera. So sticking with my example, the card network is Visa because it's the Chase card with a Visa label on it. So meaning it runs on the Visa network. The third party is the payment processor, which in this example, let's just say it's WorldPay. And then the fourth party is the merchant that's actually accepting the payment. So in our Airbnb example, that would be Airbnb. So the way a card payment actually flows today is let's say I book an Airbnb stay today, what's going to happen is tomorrow or tonight, depending on the country and the payment type, uh, the issuing bank, in this case, Chase, is going to send the money from my bank account to the card network, in this case, Visa. And then very quickly thereafter, typically within six to 12 hours, the card network will send it to the payment processor. So in this case, Visa sending the money to WorldPay. And then the merchant processor or payment processor will settle the funds on that final leg to the fourth party, the merchant, in this case, Airbnb. So the money literally moves through three or four different parties for that single transaction, you know, when I type in my card details online. And that may sound a little, you know, outdated. Why doesn't it just go directly from my bank to Airbnb? And there's lots of reasons for that, which we don't really need to get into. But suffice to say that this four party model has underpinned card payments for the better part of half a century. And it works pretty well. I mean, it moves $20, $30 trillion a year. It's extremely resilient. I think the last time Visa had a settlement failure, for example, was in 2017. So if you think about a system that's moving $10, $20, $30 trillion a year, not having a single failure for six years, that's that's pretty impressive, right? It's, it's, it's allowed commerce to move in a pretty frictionless way. Um, but that doesn't mean it's perfect, and that doesn't mean it can't be improved. 
And so that's where the USDC and blockchain-based solutions come into play. And so if you think about that money movement that I just mentioned earlier, so money going from Chase to Visa to WorldPay to Airbnb, right now that all happens in fiat. And maybe there's some FX involved in there depending on you know where the merchant is and where the consumer is and what currencies they want to pay in and what currencies they want to receive. But one of the big pieces of that leg is when Visa settles to the payment processor, WorldPay. And that today is all fiat. But what Visa and WorldPay have been working on is how do we take that activity on chain and actually settle USDC from Visa to WorldPay? Now, what does that actually mean? What does it do? What's, why is that important? So traditional fiat settlement runs on traditional fiat rails, which as we know, as they compare it to blockchain rails, are not available 24-7, 365. So the fiat rails in most countries don't operate on weekends and they don't operate on public holidays. So you're immediately losing, call it 20, 25, 30% of availability on a day's basis. And then those rails in most parts of the world are still not real time or not instant. Whenever Visa effectuates or instructs that payment, assuming it's on a day where the rail's available, it's still going to take several hours, if not a couple of business days to clear. And so there's this big time lag that can happen depending on where you are in the world from receiving you know, Visa receiving funds from the issuing bank and then paying the funds to WorldPay and then WorldPay paying the funds to the merchant. And so by putting that middle leg, the Visa to WorldPay leg on chain, it allows us to benefit from all the benefits of blockchain, availability, speed, and cost. And so what we're hoping is, you know, by doing this and eventually rolling out to other legs in the transaction, we actually can take that system, that four-party model that's been around for 50 plus years, to being one that is now available 24 7, 365 and allows money to move in a much more quick way than it has historically. And that's something that's particularly interesting and important given today's interest rate environment. As you can imagine, time value money is higher than ever and people want their money faster. Yeah. So I want to dig in a little bit there because I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that most of that leg seems like it's completed within, let's call it 24 hours today. Because um, the consumer experience is I pay my credit card bill once every 30 days. Yep. The merchant experience is often waiting 30 to 60 days to actually receive funds from the payout. So where in there is speed an important component? Because I think like if you're just a small business owner, your experience with credit card payments is it takes a while to get paid. And if you're a consumer, your experience is it's a while before I actually have to pay the thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a good question. <laughs> so I would say in most parts of the world, the merchants are getting paid anywhere from one to three days after the transaction takes place. I like to use the example, though, what's kind of always been funny to me is, let's say it's Friday afternoon, I could order an Amazon package for next day delivery. It'll be at my house, potentially even that evening, if not the next day on Saturday. But Amazon's not going to get paid for that until Monday at the earliest. Because again, the rails will be closed over the weekend. Yeah. So I've always found it kind of funny in the e-commerce space that I could get this like physical, you know, I could get something like a TV, this giant physical good. I could get that within like six to 18 hours. But the person who sold me that's not going to get my money, which is really just a string of digits in a ledger somewhere um, for at least 72 hours, you know, if it's if it's a Friday. So I think most merchants today, again, one to three days is kind of the standard, at least in the developed world. But there are examples if you go around the world where it's a lot slower than that. So credit cards in Brazil is a good example. I think today 
if you're a consumer and you pay a merchant with a credit card in Brazil, that money settles 30 days later. Yeah. And so in Brazil, you've actually had this whole industry popped up called factoring, which is basically people buying those receivables from merchants so that they can, the merchant can get the money you know, next day or sooner. But of course, that's a service the merchant's got to pay for, and it just adds an additional fee for payment acceptance for them. So in situations like that, where you know there are longer delays or the payment rails aren't as efficient, it just makes the use case around USDC and blockchain even more attractive. Yeah. So I want to get into a little bit of the economics sure. of why adopt USDC, why adopt blockchain at all, yep. right? You guys are a highly profitable organization. And yes, there is this sort of thesis of we want to support as many payout models as possible. Did but it? walk me through a little bit of the decision internally and your unit making the case up to whatever, you know, leadership within yeah. FIS you needed to make the case to that, uh, you know, it's really important for us to start accepting blockchain and learning how to use this technology. Do you see this as a key strategic development for long-term revenue? Do you see this as just one of the, the 30 various payment options that you need to support? How is this sort of seen internally and what were those discussions with leadership like? Yeah, so I think it's both. And I'll start with kind of the immediate, you know, revenue or the immediate applicability point. So I think as a large payments company that operates in, as I mentioned, over 50 countries, we can't just sit there and ignore new payment methods or new payment rails that come online because the world of payments is evolving extremely quickly. And as I mentioned, you know, we really want to be that platform that allows our clients to access a variety of different and pay and, and payout methods. So whenever we have clients approach us and say, hey, I would like to accept this payment method or I would like to receive my payouts in this currency or on this rail, that's something we take seriously. Because if is that something you guys actually saw here? Were, the, were yes. you seeing demand for USDC? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Just to go down that rabbit hole for a second, what did that kind of look like? Were you seeing? I mean, I'm sure you can't get into names. Were you seeing companies the size of Airbnb saying we are seriously looking at stuff like USDC? Yeah, it's been predominantly from the crypto and Web three clients. So we work with about okay. thirty or forty different clients in the crypto space. So think of large exchanges, fiat on ramps, brokers, wallets, etc. Of course, for them, they're very familiar with USDC and holding and transacting with digital currencies. So I think for them and, and a lot of the businesses in particular in the crypto space that are in kind of the, the retail facing environment where they're selling crypto, if you think about it in that sense, part of why it was interesting is let's, let's say I'm a fiat on-ramp or a broker, you know, Austin goes to my website and places an order. As soon as I get that payment confirmation or payment authorization message from my payment processor, I basically source that crypto from a liquidity provider and deliver it to you. Mm. And the longer I take to pay that liquidity provider, the more expensive it is for me. And maybe if my order volumes go through the roof, I might not even have the cash on my balance sheet to uh, pay that liquidity provider. It's that throttles my business back in a way. And so for them, the, the folks like that, the thought of being able to receive settlement in USDC um, either more days a week or more quickly than they receive fiat, that's actually a business growth enabler and a money saver for them. So that was driving some of that interest. So yeah, let's go back to sort of those those conversations internally. I know yeah. when the C word comes up at a lot of <laughs> large companies, especially ones who work in highly regulated spaces, everyone sort of goes, oh, I don't know. So what was that process like of convincing, you know, the rest of WorldPay, the rest of FIS that like this is really something we need to be building on? Yeah. So I'll say a couple of things. So we, we've been in the space for almost 10 years now. We started working with Coinbase back in 2015 as the first 
client that we had in crypto. So our leadership team has got, I would say, a very strong base level of familiarity with the industry and what we do in the space and how it's relevant to payments. Just because when you've been doing something for eight, nine years, you you tend to learn a little bit about it, right? So I think we 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 had a decent foundation. And I think what we found is a couple things. One is a you need to come with the business case or the revenue opportunities. And so the fact that we had inbound merchant interest for something helped a lot. It it kind of made the path to revenue very clear, which as you can imagine, always helps. Sure. I think the second thing too is going back to that platform piece, you know, who knows what the future of blockchain-based payments is going to be. Some people will say it's going to be CBDCs that'll be everywhere in five to 10 years. Some people think stable coins are just going to continue to grow and grow and grow. Other people think, you know, using things like Bitcoin and Ethereum as a form of payment to pay for goods and services is going to have its day, even though it hasn't yet. So as a large, diversified, innovative payments company, we'd be a little bit remiss if we just ignored all of that, right? If you think about payments, one of the top five or 10 things that's always discussed and has been for the last several years is blockchain-based payments. And so we pitched the revenue opportunity, but we also pitched it as like, hey, this is a way for us as an organization to actually start doing basic things like setting up wallet infrastructure and integrating uh, crypto reporting into our balance reconciliation programs and our accounting system and all that sort of stuff. So actually, if you think any of those future worlds are possible, whether it's CBDCs or stable coins or, you know, non-stable cryptocurrencies being used for payments, if any of those things take off and we as a large payments company want to participate in it, then I'd hope we have some baseline understanding and had already dipped our toes in the water, so to speak, before we just get caught off guard with the market. So that was a bit of the narrative as well. Obviously, there was an absolute ton of wood to chop on the regulatory front, as you can imagine, on the treasury and bookkeeping front, as you can imagine. But sure. those are all solvable things, right? That's just a question yeah. of investing the resource, doing the right research, talking to the right people and getting the right kind of controls and procedures in place. Those are, I would say, execution things once you've made the high level decision to actually say, I want to do this. So how does the fee structure of using something like USDC through WorldPay compare to processing a credit card? Yeah, so the way I would say it right now is if you accept a credit card payment through WorldPay, um, we offer you the ability to settle in over 20 different currencies depending on where you are in the world. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're a merchant in Europe, you might want to receive settlement in euros and Swiss francs and Polish slotties and whatever other European or currencies you like. If you're in the US, maybe you just take dollars. So we basically have this menu of settlement currencies. What we've done is we've added USDC as a settlement currency on that menu. So a client can say, hey, you know, for these transactions or this portion of my business, I want to receive settlement in USDC. And we just do the conversion from fiat to USDC for them. So the way to think about it is the core payment processing activity hasn't really changed. Mm. All we've done is offer another currency. And of course, we have a, a fee associated with that currency just like we have a fee associated with any other settlement currency. Got it. So over the long term, though, do you expect to offer USDC payments on the ingest side too? Like, you know, there's obviously a whole series of companies involved with the checkout window I see. Yeah. But fundamentally, me typing my credit card number in there and me scanning a QR code to send a USDC settlement um, it is a is a similar enough consumer level act activity but behind this behind the scene you know there's all, all that plumbing that makes it possible yeah is that something you guys are, are looking at enabling as well so i would say we've we've definitely looked at it uh 
if I'm being honest, the demand versus like on the settlement side, it just hasn't been there. Yeah. So our approach has been, you know, if there's appetite from our clients to accept it as a form of payment, which means there would be appetite or interest from consumers, you know, in a meaningful way to be able to, you know, use it as a form of payment, then we'll absolutely be, you know, responding to that. But today we we haven't seen that, if I'm being honest. Yeah. There's this funny diagram that this question brings into my mind, or maybe maybe a meme is a better word. It's not really a diagram. But I saw this meme a couple months ago, and it basically had a picture of an iPhone where, like, if you listen to every single request from a consumer, what would an iPhone look like? It would probably be some jumbo portable device that has, like, a keyboard and, like, you know, 7.1 surround sound and, like, all this stuff, right? And so I think this is the bit of the trouble that payment companies face. And even going back to the Airbnb example, you know, if Airbnb polled all of their consumers and said, which payment method would you like to use? It'd probably be a list of like three or 400. Right. And they're not going to accept three or 400 different payment methods. And so we kind of run into that same dynamic where if we go ask our client base, our merchants, hey, what payment methods do you want to accept? Cumulatively across our entire global payment base, they'd probably list every single payment method that's out there in the world. But as you can imagine, like, yeah, we support a few dozen payment methods, but if you start supporting 500, it's probably going to get a bit unwieldy, right? Keeping all those integrations yeah. up to date, ensuring the data, you know, integrity and fidelity is there, et cetera. And so it always just comes down to that demand question. And so if there is demand in a material way to pay in in USDC, then we'll, we'll definitely take a look. So what does material mean for a company that's doing $2.2 trillion a year <laughs> in volume? That's like, a good like, question. I think there's, there's, yeah. this whole, there's this whole thing where, you know, we're seeing a lot more pilot projects. We're seeing a lot more of these types of things. Yeah. What amount of either money or percentage of volume does something like USDC need to hit to really start landing on the radar internally? That's a really good question. I wouldn't say there's like a line where if demand is greater than X number, then, you know, WorldPay will integrate. What I would say is it comes down to what are the volumes? What does that mean in terms of economics for us? What's the growth trajectory of how we expect that demand to evolve? Um, you know, which of our clients are asking for that? Are they like, you know, tier one strategic accounts, et cetera? So it's I wish I could I could give you a, a line in the sand and say, hey, you know, if we had documented demand for greater than five billion a year in payment volume, then the answer is yes. Uh, it's just not the way that it typically gets, you know, decisions made. It's it's more that qualitative, holistic view of like, okay, is there some basic level of demand there that we can underwrite? Is the growth trajectory over the next few years substantial? Um, you know, are these key clients that are requesting it, et cetera? That those are all the kind of factors that we look at. And then, of course, the regulatory angle and and the internal feasibility and all that. Right. So right now, when WorldPay is starting to use USDC and Solana with Visa involved there too, the piece of the problem you're solving is not necessarily on the, I swipe my card, my card network talks to Visa, that takes a few hours. It's really on that secondary part of once Visa says we've authorized money to be sent to the merchant, that's going from, you know, potentially 36 to 48 hours. So when you're coming out of the Visa network and the merchant wants USDC, what does that time sort of to settlement look like compared to the traditional rails? Yeah, so what I would say is we break it up into a couple different pieces. So I hope it's not taking a few hours to process your card because that should take seconds. So the first part of the transaction is what we call an authorization. So this is like where you go into a store and you tap your card or you hit checkout online and it says processing for like two seconds. 
basically what's going on there is there's a message being sent from the merchant via WorldPay or whoever their processor is to Visa and to your bank. And essentially what it's doing is it's doing two things. It's saying, does Austin have the money or the credit balance available for this purchase? And do we believe it's actually Austin using his card? So basically what's going on is there's a couple different parties doing a fraud check to make sure it's actually you and not some fraudster or someone who's stolen your card. And then assuming it is you and we're comfortable with that, we're just checking to make sure you got the money available. So that's the thing that takes two or three seconds when you hit checkout or tap your card. Then what happens is a process called clearing, which I think is probably what you're referring to. That's yes. all the back end reconciliation going on and the actual kind of funding of the transaction. So that process will take several hours for the bank and Visa and us to do. And then once that process is completed by Visa, then they instruct the payment to the processor. And so your question about how long does that payment take to move, it really depends on where in the world Visa is settling to us and what day of the week it is. So for example, if Visa instructs a wire on Friday evening or Saturday morning, that's not going to land until Monday morning earliest. So in that case, you're looking at like 48 to 60 hours for Visa to get the money to us. However, if it's a business day and it's Visa US paying WorldPay US, then they're using Fedwire instead of an international wire. And once a Fedwire is instructed, instructed, it should clear within minutes. So that can be much quicker. So it really depends. It's not me evading your question. It just is, goes back to that complexity point. But I think where the USDC comes in is it's a rail that's much quicker and is available 24-7, 365 vis-a-vis some of those other fiat rails, such as Swift or Fedwire. So take the example of Visa effectuating or instructing a payment to WorldPay on Friday night or Saturday morning. Guess what? I'm still going to get it in 30 seconds or two minutes or whatever it takes, depending on the chain that USDC is running on. So what it really does is it speeds up that leg. And then the quicker I have the money, the quicker I can pay it out to the merchant right. to let them get paid quicker for the goods or services that in many cases they've already provided. Yeah. And your long-term sort of vision here is one where you then can use USDC rails on something like Solana actually to get down to the merchant level as well? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually offer our own USDC settlement service, which is the last leg of the transaction, us to the merchant, which I just spoke a little bit about earlier. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it now, really, there's out of those three legs of money movement between the four parties, we've, we've put two on chain. So us doing the last one to the merchant, Visa doing the middle one to us. And then Visa is also um, in a pilot program with a couple issuing banks to also tackle that first leg. Now, that's great. Each individual leg will be quicker. But then the next piece of the puzzle is how do we stitch that all together? And that's actually where a lot of the complexity comes in with payments. Just to give you another example, um, you know, there are actually a lot of real-time payment systems available in the developed world now. So for example, yeah. in the UK, we have the faster payment system, which has been around for several years. Basically any transaction, I believe it's under a million pounds, will will settle and clear almost instantly. It's, it's quite impressive. Um, Singapore, for example, Thailand, Malaysia, they all have real-time payment systems. Obviously the US, there's been a lot of discussion about FedNow and, and what that means for instant payments in the US. In the European uh, single euro payment area, they've got instant SEPA, uh, which has got, I think, about 40, 50% coverage of all banks in Europe. So there's all these real-time payment networks that have sprung up in like the last decade or so, but very few, if any of them, are stitched together. So what you ended up in is a situation where 
domestic payments and particularly low value domestic payments have sped up quite a bit. But mm -hmm. cross-border e-commerce and card payments that run on those settlement rails, which typically are wire, they haven't really caught up yet. Right. And so there's kind of two ways you could approach that. One is you could say, hey, WorldPay and Visa and every issuing bank needs to go integrate all these different real-time payment rails around the world and kind of stitch everything together. Okay, that's one potential approach. The other potential approach is, hey, we pick this kind of universal currency, USDC in this case. And Rails, in this case, Solana, or whatever chain you want to use that kind of span borders, so to speak, such that you don't have to do all this stitching together. So it's just a different way of attacking the same problem that gets you towards that same goal of just speeding things up. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it, that the work of integrating blockchain and integrating USDC is potentially significantly less than integrating 50 different countries' fast payment networks yeah. altogether. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that's a panacea, right? Like there's a lot of considerations. We talked about the regulatory considerations as as one piece, right? Uh, there's a lot of considerations that countries give into kind of the sovereignty of their payment systems. Uh, so you, you can imagine like if it got to that sort of scale, then there'd probably be some interesting questions to think about on that front. Sure. Um, also with, you know, these, these, you know, in most cases, government backed or government sponsored payment rails there's some degree of like governance or oversight or rules associated with them, just like we have the card network rules that govern things like chargebacks and fraud and all that. So that also can give a lot of people comfort, right? So I, I think the integration side of USDC and blockchain, yes, there's a lot of synergy and scale benefit there, but there's also a lot of other considerations that as this evolves and matures, uh, you know, companies like us and bees are going to have to think about. Yeah, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about that component too. Sure. Transactions on blockchain are not reversible. Transactions on credit cards, as we've talked about, are famously reversible. Yep. Even most ACH transactions are reversible in some way. Like you have a payment processor for expense reports and they pay you money into your account. Usually they also have the right to go into your account and pull money back out without your sort of authentication yep. on this. And, and that is one of the reasons people are excited about blockchain payments, it's also probably one of the barriers to accepting blockchain payments for some other folks, which is that they lose that sort of uh, recall ability here. How have you guys thought through that from, from a risk engine standpoint, from a transaction fee standpoint? Do you still need to take that percentage-based sort of chargeback component there? Are you, are you rebuilding basically your own insurance fund for USDC payments? What does that sort of look like? Really good questions. So I would say a couple things, depending on who you ask, like where they sit in the ecosystem, they will say the fact that a dispute or recall or reversal mechanism not being available is either a really good or a really bad thing. Right. So <laughs> speaking of generalities, if you go ask most businesses like merchants, if you told them, hey, you know, this payment method, it can never be reversed or disputed. They're going to be like, oh, that's amazing. That's great. I love that. Um, because then it puts the power on their hands of whether they want to issue a refund because they feel like the consumer was wronged or not. It, it gives them the authority over that. And there are a lot of payment methods where that's actually how it works today. There is no reversal or recall or dispute. Mm -hmm. Whereas a consumer might say, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. If I'm going to buy something expensive, like electronics or something, I'm going to use my credit card just in case, you know, something happens or goes wrong or maybe get an extended warranty or whatever, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of debate around you know, what's good or what's bad. And that really comes down to where you sit in the value chain. I think 
from our perspective, again, as a as an aggregator of all these payment methods in a platform, it's not really for us to dictate what's good or what's bad or what's right or what's wrong. It's really about meeting the needs of our clients. And so if we have a lot of clients that come to us and say, hey, you know, I'm in this country and this payment method is, you know, a big portion of payment volume. The fact that it doesn't necessarily have a reversal or dispute or refund or whatever mechanism, that's not that relevant to us. That's Hmm. a contract really between the consumer and the merchant when they pay. And the merchants know that when they accept these payment methods, they don't have those capabilities. And the consumers typically will know when they use those payment methods that they don't have those capabilities either. So it's kind of like all parties have agreed, if that makes sense, that this is this is appropriate. Yeah. And mind you, you know, most of these payment methods, they are regulated by the local competent authority for financial services. So it's not like it's the complete Wild West. It's it's some sure. degree of governance. But there are a lot of regulators out there who, you know, might say actually chargeback and disputes being governed by card networks and payment processors rather than the merchant that sold the good or service. Maybe that's not how it should be structured. So there's a lot of debate around that. Do you see this as a technology over the long term that reduces the aggregate amount of fees that both users and merchants pay? Or do you think because of these sorts of things, like there may be a bit of a mandated insurance pool anyway for these sorts of things, we're likely to see speed be the main differentiating factor? I think it is speed and cost. And I haven't done the numbers analysis, so I can't say you know definitively, do we expect this to be cheaper than cards or other existing payment methods today? What I would say is, as the world has rolled out these real-time payment systems in different countries, and as things like QR code-based payments and account-to-account payments have you know, taken hold in a lot of places, typically those are cheaper, at least than a credit card. Sometimes they're quite competitive with debit, but from a credit perspective, they do tend to be cheaper. Mm. Yeah. So I would expect that to be the case with this as well. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. So I think the last thing to kind of touch on a little bit here is what you mentioned a few times, which is the regulatory framework from this. You guys have a lot of jurisdictions you operate in. I'm sure you have a lot of lawyers. One of the things we have heard from a lot of small merchants is that, you know, maybe they want to start accepting USDC payments or other types of blockchain-based payments, but they don't actually know how to do it in a compliant way. It's very unclear if they require licensing to receive payments and all these sorts of things. So um, so for two levels, kind of what was that regulatory diligence process like for WorldPay? And then as you're looking at potentially expanding this out to the merchant network, what kind of guidance do you have to provide them in terms of how to interact with these payments in a regulatorily compliant way? Yeah, good question. So I'd say a couple of things. First, you know, as a large regulated financial institution, compliance is paramount. You know, we can't operate the scale we do without trust. And a big part of trust is being in compliance with the law and being able to demonstrate that, you know, at scale and across the world. So it's something we care a lot about. And as you can imagine, as we started to roll out the USDC settlement service, both the one that we did and the one with Visa, there absolutely was a lot of regulatory analysis that we did. I obviously can't dive into that, but what I can say is that that was a massive piece of research 
with the help of, you know, external experts that was undertaken by us. And we wouldn't move forward with offering those products and services unless we felt that we were in the clear to do so. What I would say is where there's been a bit of a challenge or a little bit of blurring of the lines is if you look at a lot of countries around the world, most countries have some sort of agency and regulatory framework that governs the provision of payment services. So for example, WorldPay is authorized as a payment institution or some flavor of that in most of the countries that we work in, or we work with some party who is appropriately licensed as such. But a lot of the same jurisdictions have also rolled out a virtual asset service provider or crypto licensing and registration regime. Yeah. So where you get into some of the gray areas, like, okay, if you're a payments company, but you're working with crypto, it really comes down to the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of like, what exactly are you doing with crypto? And does that fall under the payment regulations or does it fall under the crypto regulations? And so that I think is where, you know, as crypto payments, whether they're USDC or CBDC or other stable coin or whatever, you know, start to proliferate a bit more, having some clarity and really having a degree of conviction on where you stand on those two different pieces is really important. And that's something we spent a lot of time on. What does that mean for the merchant? I'd say a couple of things. So most merchants, you know, they shouldn't have to have some sort of, you know, payment institution or electronic money authorization. They're just selling a good or service. Now, maybe the good or service they sell is regulated and they need their own permission or service or licensing requirement for that. But to just accept a payment, you know, nobody like the restaurant down the street, for example, doesn't need any sort of payment license to accept your Visa MasterCard card when you go pick up your food. So I think to the degree possible, it's the job of companies like us. It's the job of companies like Visa and MasterCard. It's a job of the banks. It's a job of crypto companies like Circle, for example, to ensure that those regulatory requirements are being met. But again, as the space evolves, there's probably going to be some intersection there where things need to get ironed out, either by regulators or by the courts or by other forces. You know, one of the things you've mentioned here is Circle, obviously, the issuer of USDC. They are one of sort of three companies in the U.S. that has sort of highly compliant stablecoin products at this stage. They're expanding internationally. There's different ones in other jurisdictions. I think there's sort of a few ways that folks tend to view the evolution of stablecoins long term. There's the chance that something like Circle just holds 90% of the regulated market share and tethers off doing its thing. And there's the other section where we see Chase Coin and we see Visa Coin and we see basically everyone who stamps their logo on a Visa credit card, like an issuing bank, like you were talking about before, ends up basically producing their own type of stablecoin. There's also a world where <laughs> WorldPay launches its own stablecoin, right? Yeah, I could not tell you how many times I've been asked, you know, is WorldPay going to launch WorldPay coin? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you don't have a complete answer there, yeah. but I'm sure that was also discussed a little bit internally. You know, how large are the ambitions of the Web3 and crypto payments division of WorldPay? Yeah, so what I would say on the stablecoin question is, you know, starting and operating and running a stablecoin is a very different business than processing payments. Like, yes, at the highest level, they're both, you know, financial services, you could say. But they're they're quite different from a, a business model perspective, an economics perspective, risk and compliance and licensing requirement perspective, et cetera. So my opinion is it it's actually not as tangential to kind of operate the currency as it is to process the payment. They're kind of two separate things. 
And so mm-hmm. I, I don't know necessarily that you're going to see a lot of payments companies or payments networks start to operate uh, public versions of their own stable coin. Right. I think if you look at something like JP Morgan, right, like it's it's very different than a public stable coin. It's not like I can go buy, you know, JPM coin or Onyx coin or whatever they call it out on the open market. It's something that's used for internal ledger transfers between themselves and their clients and their clients between each other. Yeah. So that's very different where it's almost like a piece of technology that's just simplifying operations versus what Circle is doing, which is actually offering what is now becoming in most parts of the world a regulated financial asset, right? So I think it's a pretty large leap for most payment companies to want to go from A to B because of all those different reasons. Right. And then I would say our ambition for the space, you know, going back to or kind of hitting a few points that I talked on, we've been in the space for coming up on 10 years. We've got a great team that understands it's well. We've got a particular kind of expertise at the intersection of crypto and payments. And we've got that top-down leadership support, which we're really lucky to have. So I think from our perspective, we keep a really close pulse on all those different pieces, whether it's stablecoin payments, whether it's CBDCs, whether it's payment acceptance on the the inbound side for crypto, whether stablecoin or other. And so as the market continues to evolve and you know, as a player that's in the heart of that market, you'll see us kind of act and follow what's going on. What about on the larger FIS side? I mean, you guys do offer capital market services, banking services, if not at least issuing your own, then have, do you know if there's been any desire or demand for facilitating transfers directly into accounts? It's a good question. I honestly can't speak to it since I work in the World Bay part of the business, but I would imagine, you know, given where they sit as a provider to the financial services ecosystem that, yeah, there's discussions I'm sure that are being had. Yeah. I think that's, uh, for a lot of us, that's kind of that last holy grail is being able to withdraw and deposit stable coins directly into something like a U.S. bank account. <laughs> if you look at the end state that everyone sort of wants, these payments should be just a receivable address in a bank account the same way a wire transfer in ACH can be too. Yeah. So stepping outside of FIS, I mean, there are a number of banks, even in the last year or two, despite some of the broader crypto context that have rolled out, you know, custody product and crypto deposit accounts. Yeah. Predominantly right now for professional and institutional clients, but a few banks that have rolled it out for retail as well. But I think this actually dovetails really well into at least something here in the UK that's been a huge topic, which is tokenization of bank deposits and what that actually means for like the future of how you interact with your money that's held at the bank. And I think whether it's stable coins, whether it's CBDCs, whether it's tokenized deposits, like all three of those things probably have some role to play in that going forward. I don't think it's going to be either or. Well, it's a great place to end it. Uh, Nabil, thank you so much for joining us today on Validated. Yeah, thanks again, Austin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.